and also drove through places that that uh, that that I knew, places where I grew up, and saw people. Um, I, it got me thinking about life. It got me thinking about how well I am living. And one of the specific thoughts I had was I, I saw a number of places and a number of people that were unchanged. I've been in Lynchburg for 15, almost 16 years. And, and there were some, uh, some of the exact same places that, that, were, that were unchanged. Now, a certain part of that is, is, is comforting. You know, you, you like going back to places and you say, oh, well, there's the Dairy Queen. There's where Tracy worked when she was, when she was 16. And it was unchanged. I mean, it might have had a paint job, but, but there, was a, there was a nostalgic uh, warming of the, of the heart. But then whenever it came to people that I met, specifically believers that I met, I had to walk away, say, I went to, uh, went to a Christmas Eve service there, went to Wednesday night service there, um, uh, prior to, and, and I just thought, I met people and thought, wow, 15 years, and they're exactly the same as, the, as, as, as whenever I left. And, and I guess you, you all want to say that, oh, well, you haven't changed since high school. Well, if you're talking about looks, that's okay. But if you're talking about your walk with the Lord, that's bad, isn't it? And I thought, I don't want to come to the end of my life and, and have little to show for the Lord. Or someone see me several years from now, or even a year from now, and think, wow, not a lot has changed. I want them to think, wow, he is, he's growing in the Lord. I can see more of Christ in him. So the question that, that I ask myself is, is how well am I, am I living? And I ask you the question. How well do you live? Hopefully, if you're a believer, your greatest desire is to live a life pleasing to God, and that's a life useful to, to God. I can think of nothing more heartbreaking, really. Now, when you think about this, there are two things about hell that's a hor- that, that, that I think is, is, is as horrible as the, as the eternal torment and the, and the literal fire that is there. One is the hopelessness. Even unbelievers have hope. You know, there's always hope. Little orphan Annie, the sun will come out tomorrow, right? Every, even unbelievers, they, they cling to some level of hope. But in hell, there is, there's hope. There's no hope what, whatsoever. And there's also regret. Isn't a regret a horrible thing? I mean, it's a horrible thing. Now, for believers, the Bible tells us that God's mercies are new every day. His faithfulness is, is renewed. And there's always a new beginning. And there's something about next week that I really look forward to, which is new beginnings, new starts, a, a new year. And there's a, there's a sense of hopefulness in that. Every morning when you give up, get up, God gives you an opportunity to, to start again, to start, to start fresh. I can think of, of nothing more... More, more difficult than, than that idea of, um, of regret. Reaching the end of your life and realizing that what you lived for will perish with your life. Isn't that a horrible thought? All that you accomplished was earthy. It was earthly. It had no e- eternal purpose and it's going to blow away like dry grass, like, like the rest of your life. A wise person finds a fruitful and fulfilled life in God. And, and, and I want to share with you some, some insights this morning from, from a specific passage in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a, is a well-loved book, and, and one that I guess probably every Christian has read. You probably will start in January a new read-through-the-Bible, however you do that, whether it's a, an Old Testament passage, a New Testament passage, a Psalms and a Proverbs, or whether you read Proverbs on the day, or whatever it, 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 it might be. It's a wonderful practice if you don't do it. There are 31 Proverbs, and you start on, the, on January 1st with Proverbs 1, and you read through, and you read through it over and over. I love the book of Proverbs, as you probably do too. I like it because of, of a number of things I'll point out to you this morning, but, but it's near and dear to my heart because it was my grandfather's favorite book. He had, he had a sixth-grade education, but was one of the wisest men I knew. Have you ever met somebody with lots of education? but they're dumber than a box of rocks. They're educated idiots. Knowledge is, is not our goal. Wisdom is our goal. 
A wise person knows how to take knowledge and put it into practice. Now, I'm not down on education. You know that. I hope that, that you, you continue to grow in knowledge. But I'm just saying knowledge without, not what, without knowing what to do with it is just stuff. And he was a very wise man. He grew up hard. He was very successful in life. But he came to Christ at the age of 60. And you've heard the story, I would, I would suppose, but his wife, my grandmother, put a, put a note in his, in his lunch pail when she fixed him lunch when he was going squirrel hunting one day. And he sat down under a tree and opened up the cloth, of, and in the pail he found a letter. And he opened up the letter and he read it, and, and there were the words on that page of a praying wife who'd cried out to God for many, many years for her husband's salvation. And she reminded him of the gospel again, and she told him, her assurance of heaven because of what Jesus had done. And she said, I can't imagine going to heaven without you. But if you don't trust Christ, that's exactly what's going to happen. And after years of prayer and and, and living and otherwise, uh, the air hit the mark that day and under a tree on the, on the hillside of West Virginia, my grandfather bowed his heart and confessed his sinfulness and surrendered his life to Christ. That's 60 he smoked a pack of pale mail cigarettes every single day of his life. He was a drunkard. He was a number of other things. And whenever he met Jesus, everything changed. And he began to read the Bible for the first time in his life. And Proverbs was one of his favorite books. He said there's not a lot of work needed to understand Proverbs. The, the fruit hangs pretty low to, to the ground, if you will. Even if you don't know how to study the Bible or, or divide the Word, you can go to the book of Proverbs and, and find some ready application. And while that's true, there is a structure to the book of Proverbs that, uh, that I want to show you. It's called uh, it's, it's wisdom literature. Job is wisdom literature. So is Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and certain Psalms. They fall into that category. But Proverbs is, is wisdom literature. And Proverbs, if you want the overarching themes, Proverbs teaches us a life lived by God's will is a happy life. And those of you who have lived without Christ and those of you who live with Christ now can testify to that. Sin is pleasurable but it ends. It's pleasurable for a season. Then you have to put up with the consequences. A life lived by God's will is a happy life. A life lived by God's will is a useful life. Isn't it a horrible thing to think that your life is wasted? Doesn't it feel good to come to the end of a, of a hard day's work and, and lay down exhausted or tired, feeling useful, knowing that, that you were some service to God or someone else? And yet a life lived by God's will doesn't just happen. It's pursued. My daughter, Isabella, the young one, likes this TV show that's old. I don't think it's on anymore. It's called Little Bear. You all know Little Bear? Well, there's a frog on Little Bear. And he meditates and uses the frog on the lily pad. And he sits there and he, and he, he makes the, the sound. A, a life lived by God's will doesn't come by just meditation. It doesn't come by like a frog on a lily pad. It's pursued. You put your nose to the grindstone. You pursue God. You pursue the Lord in His Word. And that's what Proverbs teaches us. Proverbs will make one wise. But it's not disconnected from the rest of the Bible. I've heard well-meaning people say that the book of Proverbs is, is like disconnected from Scripture. They treat it like disconnected. From Scripture. And Proverbs actually has a lot to do with the rest of the Bible. In fact, it has a lot to do with redemption. It gives us help to live life on earth as, as God's people. Uh, if, if, as Christians, we're not spiritual schizophrenics, we don't just live our faith on Sunday or in our homes and then, and then don't live it any other times. Some people try to do that, it's a horrible testimony. But Proverbs is directly connected to the Old Testament, directly connected to the rest of the Bible, and directly connected to, to redemption. Here's how Proverbs is connected to the plan of salvation, which starts in Genesis and runs all the way through Revelation. Salvation involves God restoring man or woman, if you're that persuasion or gender. Salvation involves God restoring man to his proper function. And so Proverbs restores life to its proper function. It teaches us how to, to live life the way that God intended. 
wisdom is also a part of worship, and worship is all about redemption. John 4.23 tells us that God is seeking worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in, and in truth. The audience of Proverbs, it's written to God's covenant people. It has everything to do with, with redemption. And much of Proverbs applies the law. Proverbs gives us a proper order of things. It helps us correct our lives. Without salvation, it would be impossible. But, but with salvation comes the ability to change and to pursue God. And Proverbs gives us a roadmap in practical areas. It, it shows us how to restore life in its, 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 its right order. And right living comes from a heart desiring to please God. And, and that heart is a, is a worshipful heart. To be wise means to be skilled in the art of godly living or the ability to apply biblical truth in, in, in life. The very foundation of Proverbs, the audience is God's covenant people. The very foundation of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord. You as believers fear the Lord. Those redeemed by the Lord revere the Lord. And he uses his covenant name. Many times, anytime you see the fear of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the fear of, of Yahweh, the fear of Jehovah. And much of Proverbs applies the law, so it has plenty of implications of redemption. And while it is true that even if you're an unbeliever, even if an unbeliever would apply some of the principles laid out in the book of Proverbs they would likely prosper. Proverbs was written to the family of God. And that's you. So I want you to open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3. And we're going to read the first 12 verses. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. This is the third parental appeal of the book of Proverbs, and I'll show you those in just a moment. Verse 1 of Proverbs chapter 3, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Point 1. Two, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Point three, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Four, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Five, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Six, my son, do not despise the discipline or chastening of the Lord nor detest His correction. For whom the Lord loves, He corrects, just as a father, the son in whom He delights. Now, the book of Proverbs is, is laid out with a structure of, of parental appeals. There are ten parental appeals in the book of Proverbs. You might read it as Proverbs on the day, Proverbs 1, 2, 3, 4, and all the way through 31, but there are actually ten appeals from Solomon to his own, to his own son. There is a, a, an appeal to avoid greed in, verse, in chapter 1. There's appeal to pursue wisdom in chapter 2. There's appeal to fear the Lord, and that's the text that we're in today. This is the third, verses 1 through 12. There is an appeal from a father to a son to live wisely, and you'll be secure. In verses 21 of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 3. We'll probably look at that one tonight. Number five, wisdom is worth maintaining. There's an appeal to maintain wisdom, and it's worth it in chapter four. There's an appeal to realize there are two ways to live your life. Choose well in chapter four. Maintain a heart of wisdom is the seventh appeal. 
retains God's view of sexuality in chapter 5. And adultery leads to ruin in chapter 6, verses 6 through 20. And then in chapter 7, avoid sexual temptation. And then you go into some general proverbs. But that is the ten parental appeals. And as I said, we're in the... We're in the the second one. Let me show you how these unfold. Turn, if you will, back to Proverbs chapter 1 and look at verse 4 and 5 because this sets up the entire book. Proverbs chapter 1 gives the intended audience of the book of Proverbs. It, It was written to the simple and to the youth to instruct them. Verse 4, to give prudence to the simple to the young man, knowledge and discretion. If you have children or you're a new believer, you should definitely get in the book of Proverbs. Teach them the gospel to get in the kingdom and then teach them Proverbs to, to learn how to function rightly as a believer in the kingdom. But look at what it says. If you're not a new believer or a child, look at, look at verse 5. It also speaks to you, hopefully. A wise man or woman will hear and increase in learning. And a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. So you never grow beyond the book of of Proverbs. You only increase in in understanding. And the Proverbs is Proverbs is written in a in a format of a parent to a child. Look back at verse one of Proverbs chapter one. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David king of Israel. Now, after he tells the benefits of the book in verses 2 through 7, look at verse 8. Here is the first parental appeal. My son, hear the instruction of your father. And he goes into this appeal concerning greed and unjust gain. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 1. Look at how chapter 2 begins. My son... If you receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. So this one's an appeal to get wisdom. So that you incline your ear to get wisdom. That's the second parental appeal. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Cry out. Seek for it. Search for it like hidden treasure. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. Here is, here's our text. Look at how chapter 3, verse 1 begins. My son... Do not forget my law. And look at verse 11 of chapter 3. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. This is the third parental appeal. And they're like bookends. He begins with my son and he ends this section with my son. And in between, there's, there, there's six instructions. There's a set of six instructions. Each one has, has two verses. There's six instructions on growing in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs is is set up as a father to to a son. Now, the Bible says that God is your father. If you know Him in salvation, and and He's my father. And a father knows how to to give good gifts to his children. This is a gift from God the Father to me and you as His children. There are instructions on, on growing in the... In the fear of the in the fear of the Lord, and as I said, you're going to see six of them, and they're going to cover two verses each. Let me show you the first one in verses one and two. The first instruction on growing in the fear of the Lord is to follow faithful examples. Look at verse one. My son, do not forget my law, and let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace, they will, they'll add to you. It's a set of instructions, and we're told to heed the instruction of faithful parents. Heed it carefully. But I think you can apply this principle beyond just parents. Just follow faithful examples. And God is, has given us the gift of wise people in our lives. Hopefully you have that gift. It's a blessing. And you're wise if you follow wise people. You're a fool if you follow foolish people. I hope you're following someone. I hope you, you're not so proud and you're so individualistic that, 
that you want to you cut the path. I mean, praise God if you're a leader. Praise God if you're willing to charge you know, the hill. Praise God for all of that. But you better have somebody that you're following in your life or you're going to be out there, out there on your own. I hope you're following someone. Do you have someone in your life that you consider, you consider wise? You're shadowing their life. They might be dead. I read a lot of dead people. <laughs> I read a lot of people from church history. I'm almost done with, with the book uh, about Judson that Ashton loaned me. Adrenaim Judson. And, and I, 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 I see things that I want to emulate. So they don't have to be alive. But I hope you're following somebody. If you're not, you need to ask why. An isolated life is not, is not a healthy life. It's not healthy. Hopefully, you have someone. Everybody needs a Paul or a Priscilla to follow. You need heroes in the faith. Now, I want you to notice what he says here. Notice he indicates the benefit of the teaching goes far beyond childhood. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. Now, watch this. For length of days and long life. And peace, they will add to you. He, the teaching of parents, the teaching of, of someone who is wise that you're following doesn't end at, at childhood, childhood. Parents no longer command obedience from their grown children, but you're wise if you remember what they taught you, especially from the Bible. Charles Spurgeon said, Nobody ever outgrows Scripture the book widens and deepens with our years. Do you find that is true? I find it's true. And I find a lot of lessons I learned in life, I learned from the faithful examples of others. Every time I string beans from the garden, I think about my mother. I can remember being a little child and, and how my dad would try to help her to string beans. And um, then I can remember my mother going back, taking the bowl of beans that my dad had already strung, and she would go back and restring them. (laughs) She would pick out what he missed, and he missed a lot. And she could have very easily ridiculed him or complained about the ones that he missed, but instead she thanked him for his help and then cleaned up after him later. In that scenario, I learned how a woman honors her husband. I can remember my grandfather coaching me on how to mow the grass whenever I would go too fast. Now, granted, he was, you know, in his 70s at that point in time, so a 16-year-old is going to go a lot faster than a, than a, than a 70-year-old. But I can remember him patiently saying to me, Brian, you're such a good worker, that motor can't keep up with you. You better wait and let it catch up. And I learned how to build somebody up while correcting them rather than tearing them down. He could have said, Brian, what is wrong with you? You need to slow down. I mean, look how much grass you're missing there. And I learned principles from them. You're a foolish person if, if you ever think you outgrow those, those lessons. And if you're older and you're wiser, you need to remember that you still have something to offer and that God wants you to teach and be an example to others. Be a testimony. Be an example, and they'll be drawn to you. Young people don't always know what they need, but they're not going to ever listen to you if you're a poor testimony to their response and their ignorance. Leave a legacy through through disciples. Again, Spurgeon, good character is the best tombstone. Those who, who loved you and were helped by you will remember you when the forget-me-nots have withered. Carve your name on hearts, not on marbles. That's good, isn't it? The benefits of wisdom, faithful parenting and following, faithful examples comes in verse 2. Length of days and long life. A general rule, obeying instruction and learning wisdom brings success in life. I have several friends who are no longer walking the earth because they lived Foolishly. One of my best friends is dead, and as far as I know, is in hell. I witnessed to him many, many times, and he died of a drug overdose. Follow faithful people. Let me give you a follow faithful example. Let me give you number two here. Hold firmly to divine promises. Hold firmly to divine promises. Look at verse three. Each of these points has two, two verses. 
Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so you will find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. You see how those two verses go together? It's the second set of instructions. Hold firmly to divine promises. And it focuses on living your life by faith in God's covenant promises. Notice what he says here in verse 3. Let not... Mercy and truth, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. There's two terms. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness. These are the two terms that God uses to describe Himself and His relationship to you as believers and specifically to to His covenant people. If you can't see that, you can turn there or listen. Exodus 34 Verses 5 through 7. It's a very pivotal verse. If you haven't looked at this verse lately, I challenge you, even this afternoon or this week, pick it up and read it again. Because it is the pivotal place in the Old Testament where God reveals Himself. Now, if you had one opportunity to share something, or if you had an opportunity to, 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 to put yourself on display, to share something about yourself, what would it be? What characteristic? would you say? You're tall, dark, and handsome. You're really smart. You have a beautiful wife. What would it be? Well, this is God sharing something specific about Himself, and it's very interesting what He says. Verse 4, it says, Then Moses rose early in the morning and went to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. That's for the Ten Commandments. And verse 5, it's up there on your screen. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed his name. Proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now notice who's proclaiming. This is not Moses proclaiming about God. This is not Abraham saying it went at the sacrifice of Isaac, the Lord provides, this is the Lord's name. This is God proclaiming about Himself. And look what He says about Himself. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, steadfast love and faithfulness. There's our two words. What you're to bind about your neck, you're to keep faith in who keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and and worshipped. When God revealed Himself, He says, I am a God who abounds in loyal love and faithfulness to those who I am in relationship with. And yet I bring holy justice on those that I'm not in relationship with. And Proverbs says, bind that truth. Remember that. Let not that truth of mercy forsake you. Bind it around your neck. Write it on your heart. Etch it on your soul. Live life in light of that relationship. The Christian life is lived on the basis of who you are in Christ. Listen to me. If you forget that, you're going to get lost very quickly and life's going to stop making sense. I don't care how successful you are. I don't care how blessed your life is, how difficult your life is. If you lose sight of who you are in Christ, if you lose sight of that anchor point, if, if, the, if the center of, of your life is not rooted in the, in the promise of God through Jesus Christ, life will stop making sense very, very quickly. God's loving kindness and faithfulness, His promises to you, is there a foundation of life. I'm His, and He is mine. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day. Have you forgotten that? I hope not. If so, God wants to remind you of it this morning. Don't allow those things to flee, to drain out of your life. Hold fast to that relationship. It will guide you right 
It'll remind you of where your sinner is. Let me give you the third one. Follow faithful examples. Hold firmly to divine promise and yield to the Lord's wisdom. Now, you're very familiar with this next passage. Verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. I could probably ask for a raise of hands of how many of you memorized that verse and there will probably be hands all over this place go up. It was Theta Lewis's favorite verse, the lady that was instrumental in leading me to the Lord. Yield to the Lord's wisdom. That would be the summary, my summary of what that passage says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. We're to trust in God with all of our hearts, meaning fully or completely. Now, when the Bible talks about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, He's not compartmentalizing you in three or four different areas. He's saying all of you. He's saying the same thing here. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, with all of who you are, every part of you. And verse 6 gives the flip side. In all your ways. I'm sorry, the second part of verse 5 gives the flip side. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Here's the positive and the negative. Do this and don't do that. The opposite of trusting in the Lord with all your heart is leaning on your own understanding. And a man or a woman who fears the Lord subordinates their own understanding to God's instruction. Subordinate. You order your thoughts. You, you place it under God's truth. Whatever you feel, whatever you think, you subordinate your thoughts, your feelings to, to God's. Trust means to, to transfer weight from one thing to another. I can remember the, the illustration, that first illustration that I can recall about, about trusting I remember a preacher coming to the edge of the... I'll try not to fall off of here and break my neck. But he talked about there's a point if I would lean forward where right now my legs are holding me up. There's a point to where if I lean too far forward, I no longer can hold myself up. And at that point, then, then, then if something was under me, I would be trusting in it. As if the hand of God is here, the truth of God is here, there's a point where, where I lean to where it has to hold me up or I'm going to fall. And that's the idea of trusting in the Lord, relying upon the Lord. And a lot of times we want to do this, but we don't want to go past the breaking point, do we? We want to come right up to the breaking point, and, and then we want to be able to pull back. And trusting God is you lay flat on His hand. And if God's truth doesn't hold you up, you fall flat on your face. That's the idea of trusting. That's the idea of trusting in the Lord for salvation. Some of you may be trusting in the Lord partially, but not wholly. And that's not going to get you to heaven. You trust in the Lord with all your heart. Transfer the weight of salvation, your day, your decisions, your marriage, your problems to the Lord. And that means when your heart or circumstances tell you something contrary to the Bible, God is to be believed, not your feelings or thoughts. It's a fundamental difference between you and the world. The world says that we can decide what is called marriage, doesn't it? The world says they can determine when human life has value and when it doesn't. The world says... They can determine what will work in the home and what won't work in the home. The world says they can determine what is sexuality and what is not sexuality. And yet the Christian Christian says, I will trust in the Lord with all of my heart. I'll not lean on my own understanding, even if it seems right, even if it feels right. I will subordinate my feelings and my thoughts to the truth of Scripture. And if the stars fall down around my ears, I will trust in the Lord. And look at the promise that He gives. In all your ways acknowledge Him, in verse 6, and He shall direct your paths or make your paths smooth. It's the idea of removing the obstacles that, that hinder you. 
God won't remove all the obstacles from your life, but He'll show you a path through them, or around them, or over them, or under them. Let me give you number four. Six instructions on growing in the fear of the Lord. This is the beginning of wisdom. You want to live a wise life, a useful life? Then you're going to cultivate. You're going to grow in fear of the Lord. You cultivate a, a humble life, humility in, in living. Here's number four in verses seven and eight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Do you see the humility there? Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Depart from evil. And it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Need a shot of spiritual calcium? Right here it is, humility. Verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 go together, but they're two different points. Verses 5 and 6 tells us, submit our understanding to the Lord. He's wiser. Verses 7 and 8 informs us a wise person is a humble person. Now, that's not what the world will present to you. The world will present to you the person who can thump their chest and make others cower. That's the one to follow. The person who can bloviate and convince people to follow. Now, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I know that's what you're thinking. A wise person is a humble person. A wise person is someone who has, who has humility. They know where to trust. They trust in the Lord. And they know where not to trust. They don't trust themselves. It's somebody who's wise in his own eyes. That's the key to understanding. His own eyes. The key to understanding that verse. And a fool is pictured in Proverbs as someone who goes it alone. Someone who's self-made. Someone who's self-sufficient. Someone who's self-instructing. And yet a wise man is someone who has a healthy fear of the voice inside their own head. How many times? Have you ever paid attention how many times you turn on the TV or you hear, you read something that's, that's not Christian, that, that comes from any number of, of, of sources, and they'll tell you, follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Just do what you want to do. Follow the voice, you know, inside of you. Be who you really are. Right? You've heard that? Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't want to follow my own heart. I followed my own heart for 24 years, and I'll tell you exactly where that ended, ended in my life. And if you live long enough following your own heart, you'll figure out where it will end you in life, and I promise you where it will end you based upon the authority of the Word of God at the end of your life. It will end in hell, not in God. And so a, a wise person has a healthy fear of their own voice, the own voice in, inside their, their, their head. One of my favorite quotes by Luther, I'm more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all of his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope self. A person who fears God is suspect of his own heart. He, he, he's not wise in his own eyes, but knows God has the answers and he looks to him. And the way you cultivate humility in that way, is you hold court over your thoughts daily. Do you think about your thoughts? I hope you do. I mean, you know, you've heard people say, you know, if they watch you driving down the road, sometimes you're singing, they think you're crazy. Sometimes you're talking to yourself. Do you talk to yourself? You're not crazy if you talk to yourself. You should talk to yourself. You should preach the gospel to yourself. And you should hold court over the thoughts because your heart will deceive you. And you should talk to yourself. And you say, that's not true. And here's why it's not true. And you recount the Word of God. You cultivate humility that way. Don't assume you're right. Assume you're likely wrong unless you're following the Bible. If you're naturally self-assertive, then double your efforts on this. You're, you're, you're blessing. It's a blessing to be that way. It's a blessing to have natural leadership, but it can be a curse if you're not, her uh, not careful because God gives grace to the humble, not the haughty. You might be good, but you're not as good as you think you are. Huh? Isn't that what B.R. Lakin said? 
When it's good, it's never as good as you think it is. When it's bad, it's never as bad as you think it is either. Ask yourself, when was the last time you really felt like you needed the Lord? And that will tell you if you're cultivating a proud life or a humble life. Somebody who's humble knows their need. God is near to the humble, and, and, and He can't draw near to the proud because they have, they have no need of, of Him. Again, Spurgeon. Have your heart right with Christ, and He'll visit you often. And so turn weekdays into Sundays, meals into sacraments, homes into temples, and the earth into heaven. The Lord wants to meet with you, wants to draw near to you, wants to fellowship with you. But God gives grace and fellowships with the humble, not the proud. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, depart from evil, and it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. There will be benefits, material benefits that will come from that. Cultivate a humble life. Speaking of material, look at the fifth point here. Honor God's stewardship, verses 9 and 10. Now this, think about this. This is a father writing to a son about godly wisdom, about wise living, about fearing the Lord. Okay, you say you're a, a follower of God. What, is the, what, is the, what does the life following God look like where you reveal God, you, you revere God? You don't just say that, but you live it out. This is what a life looks like. It's a life that follows faithful examples holds firmly to divine promises, yields to the Lord's wisdom, cultivates a humble life, and honors God's stewardship. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine or good grape juice if you're a conservative Baptist, all right? Honor the Lord with your substance. It means to give proper weight to your wealth and the using of it. Honor the Lord. Think of the first part of verse 9 and the second part of verse 9 as macro and micro. Honor the Lord with your possessions. That's with all you have. That's the macro. That's the big picture. And with the first fruits of all your increase, that's the micro. So all that you possess, you're to honor the Lord with. You're, you're to live in the light of stewardship. It's not my own. It's God's. And then you're to be productive. You're not to be a deadbeat. You're to have a Protestant work ethic. You're to take what God has given you and increase. Produce it. Reproduce. And whenever you increase, there's the, the macro. You're to honor the Lord with that increase as well. And we show whether we, whether we fear the Lord with our lives by how we use what we, what we have. This is not a health-wealth gospel Sermon principle, this is right out of the book of Proverbs. This is a father telling a son, I hope if you're a parent, you're teaching your children to give to the Lord. And you're teaching your children to do that by your faithful example. Because if you're not, then you're not following the pattern here of, of Proverbs. To fear the Lord means to live in, in light of Him. And a wise person understands that all they have is the Lord's. And we're simply stewards. I remember one of the darkest times of, of my upbringing came when something happened to my father. I didn't understand I was young, that he was about my age. And my father had, uh, had cultivated a lot of wealth. He put himself through college, um, self-made man, hard worker, and he'd amassed a number of things, and, and he, he had... Friends that were physicians and friends that were in the financial realm. And there was a man who was a good friend of his that, that, ha that was a, a fund manager, like, uh, you know, like a mutual fund. And unbeknownst to my father and any number of other people, I don't know how many hundreds of people, this man was embezzling money and he embezzled five to six million dollars. And all of my father's retirement and everything that he put back went up in smoke. And I can remember the, the sense of depression and oppression that was on the house. I mean, it was like my dad had lost everything that he'd worked for his entire life. 
Now, the quick ending to that story was it was all SEC insured, and because my dad keeps records all the way back to 1920, he's like the Mormon church. He keeps everything, you know. He had all of the records, and they got the money back, except for two or three years' worth of interest, and I can remember that day as, as well. If you put your trust in possessions as if that's God, and you don't see yourself as a steward that God owns it, then you can find yourself watching that fly away. And your heart will be revealed. Your heart's revealed by how tightly you hold on to it and what you, you do with it. We show the fear of the Lord by whether we honor the Lord with our possessions and whether we give God our first fruits. That's the initial produce off the top. What's produced first? And you say, I can't do that. What about my bills? What about my retirement? What about Go back to verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. A wise man produces something with his life, but he recognizes he's a steward for Christ. Let me give you the last one. Submit to the Father's providence. Look at verse 11 and 12. Here's the last point. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. Why? For whom the Lord loves. Notice, it's the name of God, the covenant name. For who the covenant God loves, he corrects. Who he's in relationship with. He corrects. Hebrews echoes this verse. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Here's a statement about how God uses everything in life to shape us into the image of Christ. God did not cause your sin. Evil cannot be placed on His ledger. But God does have the ability to use every single thing in your life and make it good. Make good on His promise to sanctify you. It may be painful. You may not know what in the world God is doing. But God will use it. He will force it to obey His purposes. And His purpose is that the work that He began, He will continue. And what does that look like when He continues? What that looks like is He's forming Christ in you. You're becoming more and more like Christ. That doesn't mean that you start growing a beard and long hair and start wearing sandals. It means that you begin to think more like Christ, you behave more like Christ, you love more like Christ, you lay down your life more like Christ, you're holy, on and on. And many times the Lord's mercy rides to the door of our hearts upon the black horse of affliction. If you look at your life and you could go back and, and just quickly think about when you grew the most, would it be in the times when everything was wonderful and hunky-dory? <laughs> Did you, were you humble then? Did you follow examples then? Did you trust in the Lord and not lean on your own understanding when everything was good or high on the hog, as they used to say in West Virginia? Or whenever you had no place else to look other than the Lord? And lots of times, affliction and difficulty in our life, God will use and turn for good. And it is His mercy. And when He does... He's chastening, He's correcting, He's disciplining. And don't think discipline as only correction, like you did something wrong. It's discipling. He's keeping you on the path in between the ditches. And He does that because He's a Father and He delights in you as a son. Whatever you're facing in life, God's in the middle of it and He will bring good. Trust Him. Tell the Lord it hurts, it's confusing, it's hard, but I trust you. You're my Father, and a Father doesn't forsake His children. Tell Him you're God and you're good. And I have no idea what you're doing. And I don't like what's going on. But I trust you. I look to you. I will hold firm to you. And I trust that you're holding firm to me. Spurgeon said, Men will allow God to be everywhere but on His throne. 
They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or or light the lamps of heaven and rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. We proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own without consulting us in the matter. God upon his throne is in whom we trust. That's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? We trust the Lord upon His throne. Get you by your heads. So how are you living? If you would look at your life, if someone would come into your life that hasn't seen you for some time, a year, I think mine was three, maybe four, since I went back to West Virginia? Would they see a change in you? Would they see growth in you? Would they be able to say they're, they see more of Jesus? Or would they say you haven't changed a bit? Maybe you already know which one of these six principles that you need to apply. Maybe you need to Consult them and pray over them this week. Whatever it is, if you're not growing in the fear of the Lord, you're not living a wise life. If you don't know Christ, um, there's no way any benefits can come to you. The wisest thing that you could ever do is bow the knee to the One who loved you and gave Himself for you. And that's where you start. You trust in the Lord. You trust in Him with salvation with all of your heart. You, you, you stand on the precipice of eternity and you lean forward until His hand catches you. And you say, Lord, I will trust in Your provision, the provision of Jesus. I will turn from my sin, my understanding, my ways, my attempts to get to You, and I have no hope other than if, if Jesus holds me up. And you confess it. you repent. You turn to Him in that way. And the Bible says He'll not turn you away. Save you. And He'll become your Father and you'll become His Son. And then it just begins there. He'll begin to counsel you in life. Oh, what a kind Father He is. I don't care whatever kind of dad you had, good or bad, the Lord is better. And He's always good. You know the Lord? If you don't, turn to Him today. Father, we... We come before you and we thank you for your truth. We thank you for Proverbs. We thank you for practical lessons. Help us. Help us as Timberlake Baptist Church, help us as individuals to grow in the fear of the Lord this year. And Father, if there's somebody here that doesn't know Christ, I pray that that they would look to Him and be saved from their sin and for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.